Welcome to Ride With Us. Ride With Us. Presented by the American Coaster Enthusiasts, a group of super fans with a mission to appreciate, promote, and preserve roller coasters around the globe. Around the globe. It's time to keep your hands and feet inside the podcast at all times. Here's your hosts, Clint Novak and Chris Roberry. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this month's Ace Ride With Us podcast. My name is Chris Roberry. And I'm Elizabeth Ringus. And we are so excited this month to be able to talk about all the incredible news that is happening in the world of coasters. Goodness, it seems like every other day a new coaster is opening up. It has been such an exciting month, hasn't it, Chris? It is. If it's not a coaster opening, it's an announcement of another coaster coming to the United States or somewhere in the world. It is really red hot coaster time. Certainly. And it's probably no hotter than it is down in Florida, not only because of the temperatures, but my goodness, there are not one, not two, but three brand new coasters that have opened up in just the past couple of months. And we're going to talk about them and what we like about them. And my goodness, there's a lot to like about those Floridian coasters that are opening up. There are, and they're so different from each other. That's what I'm so excited about really different experiences, different um, riders that will be experiencing them. And there's so much more yet to come in Florida too. Yeah. It seems like between Florida, California, and Texas, man, the it, it's on when it comes to uh, the next biggest, baddest, and more importantly, the best. We'll also sit down with Kings Island's Don Helbig to check about his history with the park and what we might be able to look forward to in the coming 2022 season. It's a really cool story that Don has. You don't want to miss it. And Chris, I am excited to welcome our former ACE president, Bill Lincolnheimer, to discuss the loss of the blue streak. I really wish this was a more positive story, but I look forward to hearing his insight on it. Yeah, it was really cool to be able to sit down and just hear the full story about what happened and potentially how it can be used to help better preserve rides in the future. So we're really looking forward to hearing that later on in the show. But first, as always, it is time to take a look at what is heading down the track, because here is the Ace Event Rundown. Spring has finally sprung, and that means Ace Events across the country. On Saturday, April 2nd, join ACES Eastern Great Lakes Region for the spring warm-up at Scene 75 in Dayton, Ohio. Also on April 2nd, you can visit Busch Gardens Williamsburg for an informal meetup with ACES Mid-Atlantic Region. Or you could jump all the way across the pond for the Join the Ride at Toverland, hosted by ACES European Region. On Saturday, April 9th, you can visit Six Flags Fiesta Texas for Ace South Central's Fiesta Fest. Or join Ace Mid-Atlantic for an informal meetup at Six Flags America in Maryland. On Saturday, April 16th, Yins can go to Kennywood for Ace Western Pennsylvania's Coaster Bash 33. Finally, take a trip to Busch Gardens Tampa and SeaWorld Orlando for Ace's annual spring conference. This national event takes place from May 6th through May 8th. For a complete, up-to-date listing of ACE events happening near you, visit aceonline.org. Well, those are some pretty cool events that are coming up, but boy, when it comes to new ride openings, I don't think there is anywhere more popular right now than Florida. It is definitely the winter to visit Florida. The winter, the spring, the summer, and why don't we just say the fall again? There are not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six, count them, six different coasters that have opened up in Florida in just the past six months or are about to open up in the next little while. Uh, let's talk about the one that literally just opened a few days ago as of this recording, and that would be Iron Gwazi. I think that's the one that a lot of folks had got a lot of hype up over, and it obviously had been finished effectively for about a year. Elizabeth, what do you think? I am just in awe. I mean, really, listening to what people are saying, how happy they are, it's so much more than just loving a coaster at this point. It's the satisfaction of finally getting that fulfillment of riding. But people are having so much fun, and it's so, for me, I haven't gotten to go yet, but I feel like I'm sharing their joy because seeing everybody come together and just be so excited to be back in the coaster world. 
has made it all worthwhile for me. Yeah, it certainly felt like this was one of those big watershed coaster ones that everybody was just waiting for. Like, when's it going to open? And it finally came and it did not disappoint, uh, according to at least the folks that were able to get on it uh, recently. So that's great to hear. Uh, great for Rocky Mountain Construction, of course, who uh, built the ride. And obviously very exciting for the folks in Tampa because that hole in that park has finally been filled. That was sitting empty there for so many years. So true. And that is a big piece of it. Iron Gwazi is a standout coaster for people visiting Florida because if they haven't seen an RMC coaster, this is really dramatic when they walk into the park. But it brings something so unique to the skyline. It just looks beautiful. And the riders are loving it. And certainly that park has quite a bit in terms of its lineup of thrill rides. So Iron Gwazi seems like it's going to be an excellent fit for the folks down there at Bush Garden Tampa. So congratulations to them and everyone involved for getting that up and running. Now, of course, their neighbors to the east over there in Orlando didn't want to be upstaged either. And they debuted Icebreaker, ironically, in the greatest marketing ploy ever, in very cold temperatures in Florida. <laughs> so I don't know how much they paid to keep the temperatures down there, but boy, it was worth every penny because it went right along with that theme. And I, this one I, seems to be a bit of a sleeper hit that folks are really excited because it's a very thrilling family coaster. That's what I'm hearing as well. But they truly, you're right. They truly did successfully break the ice, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the puns just go left and right here, folks. That's what we do here. <laughs> I could just have fun with this for hours, but you're right. It is. It's going to be one of those thrill coasters. I feel like in the sense that people remember it as they come up through their passion of riding, they remember that moment that they rode icebreaker because it's got some unique elements. I'll have to say, I am always a big fan of a coaster that's close to the ground. That's an element that I really like. So I'm looking forward to experiencing that piece of it myself. And the pictures just scream airtime. All that hair in the air, it's all about airtime. So not to be outdone as well, Peppa Pig's World opened up down in Florida, and they debuted a brand new family coaster called, well, Daddy Coaster, which, okay, makes sense for me. Never watched the show, so uh, I'm certainly, I think a, a credit run is in order. I agree with you. That is a definite stop to get that credit and just experience <laughs> such a unique park. I love how accessible they've made the park and their unique thinking. I can't wait to see this in play. I'm having seen the, I don't know if it's actually a Ferris wheel, but it looks like a Ferris wheel car that we were able to see on the Apple show floor that is wheelchair accessible. I really cannot wait to see what they've done with this park to truly meet the needs of all their potential clientele. Now, we should clarify that being a children's park, probably not going to see a hyper or an invert with multiple inversions anytime soon at the park. Could surprise us. You never know. But still, worthy to go out there, support your local amusement park, and check out Peppa Pig's Daddy Coaster down there in Florida as well. Now, we're not actually done because there's still an additional coaster that is on the horizon, and that's kind of an apt term. Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind is coming to Epcot. I cannot wait to see this expansion of Epcot. I feel like it is truly the embodiment of watching Epcot advance and become the new experimental place. Watching them transform this from its original form, it's taking on a whole new life. And this is a big piece of it. There's a real thrill ride coming. Absolutely. And Epcot really has had some pretty thrilling attractions ever since Test Track opened up in the mid-90s. Of then he had Mission Space after that. So there are a lot of folks with quite differing opinions in some cases on what Epcot should be or what Epcot was intended to be. Of course, it never was exactly what it was intended to be back in the day because it was supposed to be an actual legitimate city. So anybody who's saying that, oh, it's not what it should have been. Well, yeah, they didn't build a city there. So can't really argue with that, right? <laughs> You're right. That vision never really came to culmination, but it's really showing great um, potential of being revitalized and a whole new generation experiencing Epcot in a new way with the people that have always loved Epcot. 
And that's, I think, one of the coolest parts about this industry and parks in general is that they're always evolving. So yes, you might have been able to experience something back in the day, but you always have that experience. And now that next generation not only gets to experience it, but the next generation is helping to sort of cement what they felt Epcot could become as well. It's a very exciting time for them down in uh, Florida, that's for sure. And lest we forget, Elizabeth, there is a small little coaster that opened up at Universal's Islands of Adventure a few months ago that still is breaking headlines, and that is Velocicoaster, which even got its own Super Bowl ad this year. I think that's the first time a coaster has ever been advertised in the Super Bowl I think that was a groundbreaking moment in roller coaster history for sure. And all kudos to Velocicoaster are well deserved. I mean, I can't think of the last time that a coaster opened that I couldn't hear any complaints that everybody loves this coaster. It's phenomenal. Everybody's so excited when they come off of it. But for me, the one thing, as much as I love the ride, what really struck me was coming into the station. I wasn't at an ACE event. I'm riding with the general public and there is clapping every <laughs> time I come into the station. Everybody comes off so happy and it just truly embodies that enthusiasm, right? This is truly growing new enthusiasts. Absolutely. And to think, it's not very often that you have a, a ride that consistently brings people to tears in a good way or to applause. That is a, a next level attraction. So, man, really looking forward to uh, what you all think about it, too. Which coaster in Florida, either already open or about to be open, are you most looking forward to? Send us an email, uh, podcast at aceonline.org. Let us know. And even better, send us a voice file, and you just might be able to hear yourself on the podcast. That's it, Kristen. Isn't that fun when we hear from our listeners at home, because this is not a one-way conversation. We want to hear from them too. It's always exciting to be able to hear from our listeners, because remember, this podcast is your podcast. So let us know what you think, and we can't wait to hear from you. Now, Elizabeth, we would be remiss if we forgot there's still one more coaster that's being built in Florida right now. There is, and the look of Tomorrowland is changing forever. As you look over that Tomorrowland Speedway, Tron is gorgeous. Right there tucked in next to Space Mountain, I can, it's going to really be striking just to change the view when you walk into Tomorrowland. Yeah, and the just the colors and the effects on this ride are going to be worth the wait in line, I think. If the other model overseas is any indication, then this ride's just going to be stunning. I agree with you. From what I've heard from ACE members who traveled overseas for ACE international trips and have gotten to catch a ride on Tron. I absolutely cannot wait to experience this. Well, if you've ever been to Kings Island, you've probably had an opportunity to ride the racer. You maybe rode it once or twice, or maybe even three times in a day. But have you ridden it over 10,000 times? Probably not. But there is one person who can claim that title, and that is Kings Island's area manager for digital communication, Don Helbig. Don truly embraces a whole new level of passion, doesn't he? Uh, you know what? He took his passion for the park and turned it into his career. How wonderful is that? I think he's the luckiest guy, and I'm sure he loves going to a place every day that he loves so much, but not just going there, but contributing so successfully to its progress and continued operation. From all of his press events to creating coaster stock to everything else that he does, Don really brings quite a bit of passion to his job, and it really shows. So we sat down with him recently to talk about all those things and maybe find out a little bit of what's to come at Kings Island. Check it out. Hey, everybody. I am super excited to be speaking today with Don Helbig, who is the Area Manager for Digital Marketing at Kings Island. Don, it's good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? You know, just came out of the freeze in Texas. We're feeling good. Everything didn't, you know, crash this time. It's kind of nice. How are things up there in Cincinnati? You know, very cold. We had a lot of snow, uh, freezing rain, sleet this week. You know, what we normally get end of January, beginning of February. But, uh, you know, the good thing is, 
you know, you look at the calendar, spring just around the corner. So we don't have to, you know, like unlike other cities, you know, in the Midwest and, and that we don't have to deal with it for a long term during the winter here. So tell us a little bit, Don, about how you got started with Kings Island, because you didn't actually start as an employee. You actually more or less started as a fan, didn't you? I did. Uh, you know, it really goes back even before Kings Island. Coney Island uh, was along the, you know, the river in Cincinnati. And it was something that, uh, you know, my family, that was the thing we did by Labor Day weekend. We'd go with our cousins. So I was real, you know, real young, just old enough to remember it. Uh, but I can remember the signage, you know, the different things around the park promoting that Kings Island was coming. And we were excited to to know about the the new park. My father, not so much because we lived pretty close to Coney and where Kings Island was being built, you know, Mason, Ohio. Uh, that was considered out in the boondocks, according to my dad. And it was just a long way to go. And then instead of, you know, pay as you go at Coney Island, it was going to cost $6 to get in. Outrageous in the 70s, go there, you know, once a year. That was our big thing, our vacation day. You know, we family and modest means we weren't going to Disney and all those other trips, you know, so this was our thing. And we would circle the calendar in the spring and uh, we knew, you know, June, July, whatever date that may be, you know, we counted down the days and, and that, that was the best day of the year for us was, was going to Kings Island. And then in 1981, um, I was working for the Cincinnati Reds as a, as a novelty vendor and they had the baseball strike third year uh, that the parks had even had that product. Uh, with the season pass and you know it started going up there just to fill some time I didn't want to get another job because I didn't know if the strike was going to last one week two weeks a month whatever it was going to be so I didn't want to start somewhere else and then have to quit and go back to that so you know I loved uh, you know Kings Island so it was a good way to just kind of fill some time and I was just kind of um, curious about what the one day record was on the racer and a girl I had graduated uh, from high school you know, so I asked her, her name was Diana. I said, well, do, can you tell me what the one day record is? Well, she found out from her, from her supervisors, it was 96. So I tried to get that, got 54, came back a couple of days later, got like 36, came back another day, got 61. And I wasn't getting the one day record, but the numbers started adding up and the crew uh, kind of became aware of what I was trying to do. They started keeping track too. The next thing you know, I'm over 500 rides. Then the parks marketing department finds out about it. Ruth Voss was the PR manager at the time. Um, so, uh, the day the strike ended, I ended up uh, hitting my 1000th, uh, ride when I had to report back to work that night, uh, which was in August of that year. And, uh, the next year I came back, wrote it that year alone, 2,200 times. So it's 2,211. So now I'm over 3000 rides. So I figured the next year might as well get to 4,000. <laughs> and then in 1984, I'm up to 5,000. And at that point in time, <clears throat> I wasn't thinking 10,000 rides, you know, I was just having fun with, I was, the novelty just never wore off. So at 7,500 rides, that's when I determined, you know, I've gone this far, I can at least get to 10,000. And that ended in 1990. So I had a 10 year run where I'm at the park all the time, very involved with the marketing department in terms of um, not only riding the racer, but when they would have new rides, I would come out to media days. Uh, for that would be one of the first to ride it, or they would have me go to different uh, on their media tours around, you know, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Columbus, Detroit, Louisville, Lexington. I would be the one me talking about what was new at the park that year. So I got, you know, basically some free PR training right there, just doing those kind of things. They would give me the the key talking points, you know, what they wanted me to say. And then it started to evolve for media as they got to know me, you know, with something new was coming or at that time, there wasn't the internet, so they didn't have a lot of ways to find out, but the media would, you know, try to, to see if I knew what was going on or if something, you know, did happen at the park, you know, they would check in with me. And uh, so it just kind of grew from there. So in 1990, right after the 10,000th ride, I start working in professional hockey and I did that for 18 years. At that point in time, you know, the opportunity came to join the Kings Island marketing team in 2007 as the PR area manager. I was uh, in Albany, New York at the time working for a hockey team and decided to do that in 2007. And it's been a great ride since. It's kind of funny because in reality, there's an argument to be made that you are the OG roller coaster influencer. You may not have had a blog back in the day, or you may not have had a website because, well, they hadn't been invented yet. But the fact was that you were helping to drive the park's attendance just with good, free publicity on something that you really loved. And I think that's 
really cool to see the evolution of that from, you know, what we were. Yeah. I mean, it kind of evolved into that and, you know, used the word influencer back then. And, um, but yeah, they definitely, you know, the PR team at the time, Ruth Voss, Bill Mefford was another uh, person in the PR department. Um, you know, they, they saw different angles to, you know, how to keep only what was new, but, uh, you know, older rides like the beast and the racer, you know, in, in front of people just by having me go out and talk about it and the milestones that I was hitting and, you know. So obviously you've had more rides, I think on racer than probably anyone ever will forever at this point. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on this off season with racer? Uh, just a bit of the track work that's been going on actually in the past couple of years. Well, the track work was mostly done last year. I mean, there's always touch up that you do, but, um, you know, we worked with the Gravity Group and our team of carpenters, and they did a phenomenal job. But the ride last year was running better than it has in, in a long, long time. You know, you almost have to go back to the 70s, 80s. Um, but for a ride that was approaching 50 years, which will be this year, um, you know, breathe new life into it. Uh, our guests absolutely loved it last year. It was so much fun, so enjoyable. You know, they kept, you know, just like I did in, in, you know, in the 80s, you get off the ride, you want to get right back in line and ride it over again. Uh, this year, with it being our 50th anniversary, uh, we are repainting the racer. It's one of the seven rides that are going to be the original colors, the red, white, and blue. So the red track, the blue railings, uh, the white structure. Uh, I think in terms of photography, the racer in the 70s and 80s when it was red, white, and blue. I mean, it was one of the most beautiful rides uh, for photography purposes back then. Uh, 1991, they painted it the black track, white structure. And uh, so I'm excited to see it go back to the original colors. Um, other things going on uh, this winter with the painting, the Eiffel Tower, Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, Backlot Stunt Coaster, Flying Ace, Aerial Chase, Drop Tower, uh, and then some structures around that and some buildings around the park too. So when you're walking in the different areas, you know, whether it's Rivertown, Coney Mall, Action Zone, wherever you are, uh, you're going to see fresh coats of paint everywhere. And I think that's something that a lot of ACE members and park fans in general have been seeing post-COVID, that there are so many facilities that are taking that opportunity, that stoppage to say, okay, let's reinvest back in what we already have. Yes, you have some parks that are putting in new big coasters, and that's always wonderful, but you're seeing the love get pushed back into what's already there, and it's making the overall park experience that much better for the guests. Yeah, absolutely on that. You know, and you look at the racer, you know, it wasn't a new ride, but last year it felt like it to a lot of our guests. So it's always, you know, I always said that, uh, you know, you have the silver and gold, you know, the new attractions and that they're silver, but your long time rides, that's where your gold is. You got to keep care of them. Oh, absolutely. I think great example too would be like Santa Cruz and the boardwalk. Their two oldest rides are from 1924 and 1911. And they are the ones that drive that whole facility. Yes, you've got new cool rides there too, but everybody still wants to get a brass ring on the carousel or tries to get a ride on the Giant Dipper before it closes at night. So yeah, absolutely. Could not could not agree with you more on that. Uh, you touched a bit on this before. Kings Island still has the record, I believe, for the most wooden track uh, for a roller coaster as for the, all the three technically four, actually five uh, woodies that you have at the park, right? Yeah, Mystic Timbers, The Beast, uh, The Racer, and Woodstock Express. Those are the ones that we count as our, our four wooden roller coasters and, uh, you know, over well over 18,000 feet of total track there. And let me tell you, if you had not had a chance yet, folks, to get out to Kings Island, Don wasn't, you know, he was straight up about that. Their maintenance team, and especially the mechanics, uh, and the uh, carpenters really try to do their best to keep those rides in absolutely pristine shape. I think with the reinvestment in the racer, not only in the paint, but in the you know, retracking. And then this offseason, the Beast is getting a bit of a, let's call it a bit of a tune-up, eh? Yeah, I would call it a refurbishment, uh, different areas of the ride. It's, you know, we, although it's our 50th anniversary, it's also, you know, it was time for the Beast. It's, it's going to be 43 years old this year. So that would have happened, uh, you know, regardless. But it's, it, you know, again, breathing new life into this, right? We're working again with the Gravity Group. Uh, they are doing tunnel and making that first turn. And then they're going to be working in the uh, Helix area of the ride. Our carpenters are going to be working on other sections of, of track. Overall, it's going to be a total of 2,000 feet of track uh, that will be uh, redone uh, this winter. 
there's going to be some slight reprofiling changes. Back in, in, the, you know, in the 70s, 1977, 78, when Al Collins and Jeff Gramke were designing this ride, everything was done with hand calculations. There weren't computers back then, so they had to do it all by hand. So with the technology that's out there today and how you could do it, if the beast was starting from the ground up today, these changes that we're making, that's what you would see with the beast. So uh, we're taking the first drop and going from a 45 degree angle to 53 degrees. When you make that turn to the left, that's going to go from 30 degrees to 50 degrees. So uh, a little bit of change there, but it's just gonna make for a little smoother transition um, throughout the ride, just some of these changes that we're doing. Not gonna alter the experience too much, but uh, just gonna make it better overall. And, and if you rode the racer last year and you know, uh, you know how the changes on that just really enhanced the ride experience, you know, if you're a fan of the beast, with the changes that we're making to it now. I mean, you've got a lot to look forward to. I think, you know, there's a lot of new coasters out there. Although the Beast is going to be 43, it's going to be right up there uh, in terms of, of the coaster that everyone's talking about this year. And certainly the fact that it's 43 years old and yet still consistently makes it into the top 10 golden ticket awards for best wooden coaster, I think says a lot about despite the fact that it was built with slide rules back in the day and no calculators or no computers, yeah. just tells you just how good that ride is. And if you've never been on a beast ride at night, oh, there is nothing else like it. Absolutely nothing else like it on this earth. And that's really where I think the, the beast just leaves its incredible mark on this industry. Yeah, for me, I mean, there's I've been on a lot of different coasters around the country and a lot of night rides. Uh, it's still, if I could only do one ride, and everybody said, this is the last time you're ever going to ride a roller coaster. It would be the beast at night. Excellent choice. So every year, the park holds a major enthusiast event. Can you tell us a little bit about the, I guess, the history and background of how coaster stock came to be? All the years I had worked at Kings Island, starting in 2007, we would be asked by the enthusiast, why don't we have an event, you know, like Coaster Mania? Um, one of them was some of these other events had been established and we needed to be able to do it at the right time of year. I did not want to get into a situation where uh, I was forcing coaster enthusiasts to choose what event they wanted to go to. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to try to compete head to head with another park. I didn't want that to happen uh, to where, you know, they were torn on what to do. So finding the time to do it was, was one of the, the challenges that we had, but also I wanted to have something that kind of brought you know, and as we've evolved here since ACE was launched back, you know, in the beginning over the last 40 years that there's so many different, you know, clubs and organizations out there and things like that. And, you know, again, they compete with why you should be this club, why you should be that club. And what I wanted was to have an event to where once everybody got there, it didn't matter what club you were with, you were coaster stock. And it would become something you know, over the years that people would want to come back to, and it would be like that big family reunion. And you looked as full, as much uh, to the people that uh, you would be seeing again, you know, the friends that you'd made as you did the rides. So that was kind of the, the concept, you know, what can we do to make it uh, into that? And, uh, you know, it's become a real popular event. Tickets sell out, you know, within 15 minutes now. Um, you know, it's got, uh, just about every coaster in the park is part of one of the ERT sessions over the two days. Guest speakers come in, uh, great photo opportunities and video opportunities uh, behind the scenes of, of popular attractions like the Beast. That's always like the big thing everyone looks forward to is, is the Beast Tour. And it's an opportunity if you're a photographer to come to this event. Uh, you know, so it's really, um, it's really become something that, uh, you know, when you, you talk about it in 2000, you know, 15, when the idea was being conceived uh, to what it could be in terms of that family reunion, it exceeded my expectations for it. So something I've always wanted to ask, and I mean, I've had a chance to see it on both sides of the industry now as both a park fan and, you know, all working in either selling attractions or, uh, you know, marketing or promoting them with uh, other companies. Can you tell the the listeners a little bit about the process that goes into you know, you're thinking about, well, maybe a ride needs to retire and we're going to try and replace it with something else. Can you give us a little bit of, I guess, uh, whatever background you can on uh, a decision that has to be made like that? Because nobody likes to remove rides, right? That's not actually a thing. 
No, you don't. And, you know, those of us that work at the park, I mean, we love these attractions, you know, so there's always that personal connection to, to any ride, no matter how big, how small it is. Um, but, you know, every ride has an expiration date, you know, whether, you know, you want to think about that or not, but every ride, I mean, there does come that time where it's time and you have to uh, retire it and move on. Uh, oftentimes, you know, when you, when you see that coming and it can be anything from, uh, you know, just the ride is worn out, you can't get parts or you just need the space uh, for something different. And you just look at your ridership. You know, that's another thing. Guess what with their feet. Uh, so when you go to a park, make sure that you're riding everything because we do look at those, the ridership numbers. And if it ever came down to, we needed space, what, what are people no longer riding? You know, you look at that too. Uh, for Kings Island, we had situations where, uh, you know, when the antique cars, what is now Backlot Stunt Coaster coming in, uh, when uh, Son of Beast, the decision was made to remove that, uh, we knew that that was going to be a spot for our next roller coaster. We didn't know at the time when we announced in 2012 that Son of Beast was being removed. We didn't know it was going to be Banshee. There were some different things on the table, which ride that was going to be. But we knew that was going to be the location for it. And then you look at Firehawk, you know, when the time came to remove that ride, uh, we had Orion ready to go in that spot. And then you have a ride like Vortex, which was retired in 2019. And there wasn't anything on the board uh, to replace that. Uh, the Vortex, you know, 33 seasons, probably, la you know, we got maybe two or three more seasons out of it than what, 37 when the ride opened, you're thinking maybe 25 years. But the ride won't last at 33, but nothing on the board for it, you know, and because there's always been something replacing something all the time, you know, of course our guests speculate, you know, what are you going to do with that area? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's an opportunity down the road to do something there, but, uh, you know, I think it's fun for our guests to look at that and speculate and, and uh, think about what they'd like to see there in the future. But right now, you know, there's nothing on the board for it. Yeah. Because, uh, as you know, or well aware, coaster enthusiasts never ever speculate about, you know, open plots of land or, this ride might be leaving or that ride might be coming in, or I heard the Dippin' Dots guy tell me something and he's totally legit, you know, all that stuff. You know, it's, it's fun to, you know, to, to hear everybody's, you know, speculation, what they think, you know, we can do there, what they think we might do there. Um, but it, you know, it's fun. <laughs> uh, I, I can attest to that. It is always interesting to see some of the theories that pop up uh, from some folks who are just absolutely sure that they know this is that they they're positive about it. And then the announcements made and they go, Oh, well, I didn't really think about that. Exactly. Yeah. That's always one of the things too, you know, as you're putting in a new, you know, getting ready to announce a new ride is to see where, where those, uh, you know, that speculation goes to, you know, they're all over the map with it. And, uh, no matter what you do, I mean, there's always that group that they're really excited about. And then there's the ones that they've built something up so much in their mind that they're disappointed with it. But uh, you get to the opening day of the ride and, uh, you know, they're just excited to have a new attraction. Absolutely. Because the best part about being a fan of parks in general is that no matter what, there's always something new on the horizon to look forward to. So speaking of looking forward to, Don, what is your all-time favorite attraction, coaster or non-coaster? Well, I think just because of how involved I was with it, it would have to be the racers, my all-time favorite attraction. I mean, you don't spend 10 years riding a ride over 10,000 times, which is now 12,000 times. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not your favorite. You don't have some emotional tie to it. But uh, uh, in terms of flat rides, though, King, I mean, Grand Carousel, Kings Island, and, and the uh, Kings Island, Miami Valley Railroad, love those two rides. Also excellent choices if you're ever at Kings Island. If you could bring back any attraction from any park, what would it be and why? For me, it would be a ride like the Enchanted Voyage that Kings Island had when it opened in 1972. I mean, it's it was a phenomenal dark ride. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, Disney has its Haunted Mansion. Uh, this was very much on par with that, with the Enchanted Voyage. So I think something that would be like an eight to 10 minute long dark ride, uh, something like that, I'd love to see come back to Kings Island. And Don, final question, if there was one thing you would like to see changed or different about the enthusiast community, what would it be? I think what I'd like to see different is uh, enthusiasts not joining the different clubs just so they can attend media day events or go to coaster enthusiast events. Uh, I think I'd like to see people get involved because they like being around like-minded people. 
uh, sharing your experiences, uh, talking with other people about the parks you've been to, the rides you've been on. You know, you see a lot of the different people starting their own YouTube channels and things like that, just so they can can go to some of these media day events. And I look back to when I first became aware of ACE and met an ACE member named Marlon Scott uh, in line for the racer 1981. And just from that time in the beginning, you know, how many people were volunteering their time to make the club successful. A lot of those people, you know, they continued to volunteer and uh, they're the backbone of these clubs. They're the reasons why those clubs still exist and are successful today. So I'd like to see, you know, enthusiasts today when they join these clubs, find a way to get involved, you know, is it volunteering at an event, you know, uh, take some time out a little bit for maybe the ERT if you're at a park for an event and help staff a table, you know, those kind of things. So just like to see a little bit more uh, of a um, overall, you know, involvement and just really joining it just because you love being around like-minded people. Could not have answered it any better than that. Don Helbig, Area Manager, Digital Marketing at Kings Island. Thank you so much for spending time with us today to talk about KI, about yourself, about the enthusiast community. Really appreciate it. Well, Chris, thanks for having me on and look forward to seeing you at Kings Island this summer. You know, it's funny, Elizabeth, you can tell when someone's really passionate about something, how it, you can feel it come out in interviews. And man, with Don, it's so obvious how much fun he's having and the passion that he has behind his career. It's really inspiring. It is. I always think of him as such a great example of somebody who is living their dream career. No doubt. No doubt. This month, we introduce a whole new segment to the podcast, Trackside Chats. Thanks to listener feedback, we're going to be sitting down with former and current ACE presidents. Yeah, and we're really excited to kick it off with former president Bill Lincolnheimer, who's going to talk to us a bit about the Blue Streak. We know it evokes a lot of emotion, and we know a lot of ACE members are very passionate about this subject. So let's sit down with Bill and learn a little bit about that little park in Conneaut. Well, it is always exciting to be able to sit down, albeit virtually, and talk with my good friend, Bill Lincolnheimer III, former ACE president, by the way, uh, and also very avid roller coaster fan, and also a Penguins fan, which, okay, you know, he's not perfect, but it's okay. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing great, although it would be better if the Penguins weren't currently losing 3 nothing. so... Well, you know, at least they're not my sharks. So, because uh, <laughs> they're not doing well at all this year, but that's okay. And that's not why you all called. I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, Blue Streak. There's been obviously a lot of news about it this year, especially uh, in the past couple of weeks. So, I wanted to start with a bit of history. Uh, for example, when was the Blue Streak built and why has it evoked such emotion? amongst coaster enthusiasts for being demolished? Well, the Blue Streak was built in 1938. And uh, I was not around then. <laughs> not many of us were. <laughs> so, you know, if, if we fast forward, um, you know, I was, I was doing most of my growing up in the, as, a, as a child, anyhow, in the 1970s. And for a lot of Pittsburghers, Conneaut Lake Park was just, you know, 90 minutes or so to the north and was a destination. It was a very lively place, um, the whole park, and with the Blue Streak is the crown jewel of it. And it was something that that a lot of people just assumed would always be there. Um, you know, and the uh, continued through the 80s and, and the mid-90s is where things started to kind of go awry and in different directions. Um, and since, I believe, 1999 or 1998, somewhere around there, um, the park has been more or less in a nonprofit status. And it has managed to, to just hang on and, and exist. Um, the Blue Streak was out of commission for three years in that period, but it has, has been, you know, other before COVID continually operating. And it kind of became the people's park. I mean, it became a, a passion. The fact that it, that it survived both the park and the Blue Streak, um, you know, became, it became the people's park, both to enthusiasts and just to, you know, locals who were, you know, fans of Conneaut and just liked the nostalgia of the park in the area. And so it's, it's just uh, after all that effort that so many people have put into it. And I mean, ACE and ACE members have, uh, you know, just donated a lot of money, uh, a lot of volunteer time, as have other people outside of the traditional ACE community um, or roller coaster community that, that, you know, have really invested a lot into the park. So to, to lose it all of a sudden after all that, um, you know, it survived so many things. It's just kind of a shock. Tell me a little bit about how much ACE fought to 
keep this ride alive? What were some of the things that Ace had done to extend the life of the ride? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who have been involved in the leadership of Conneaut Lake Park for the past, you know, 22 years prior to the current owner taking ownership in the in spring of 2021, who will all tell you that, you know, the Blue Streak would not have continued to operate as it did. And perhaps the park would not continue to operate as it did if it weren't for Ace. Um, you know, Ace did so much for it. Um, when it became that nonprofit entity in the late 1990s, you know, shortly after that is whenever Ace, you know, really stepped up both at the local and grassroots level um, and, you know, later on at a more substantial level. Executive Committee on a number of occasions has donated money from Ace's Preservation Fund to, you know, whether it's just a general thing or for some particular maintenance project. Um, and there's been a number of, of, of uh, a lot of involvement from, from ACE at the local level and national level as far as being involved in various fundraisers. Um, and I think 2004 and 2005, I think those were the years um, there was a ride-a-thon where, God bless them, but, but a train full of ACE members stayed on the ride for 12 hours straight. Wow. And, um, you know, and, and as, as a thing to raise money. And I know the second of the two, I believe raised $6,000, which was, you know, for a grassroots effort in 2005 was, you know, pretty substantial. So, you know, $6,000 is not enough to rebuild the coaster, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that gets attention um, and, and makes people pay attention to realize there's people that really care about this ride. There was a $50,000 grant um, from Pepsi. And when that happened, it, it was one of those things where, you know, whatever project got the most votes in, in some online thing. And one of those things where you could vote daily, you know, once, once a day from each email address or account, however it worked. And, you know, ACE getting the word out um, at the national level. I mean, there were ACE members literally all around the world, you know, really paying attention to this and, you know, voting every day from every device or however they were doing it. And, you know, really reveling in the fact whenever it succeeded and ACE was the one that got that, or Conneaut Lake Park is the one that got that grant and ACE had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, the, there were, of course, locals were really pushing it, but ACE being able to get the word out in such a broad range, you know, you know, across the country and, and beyond um, is what pushed that over other projects. And it got the $50,000 grant. And there were a number of things like that. There's another one from Signs Now, um, which um, got them a, a big grant from Signs Now to make new signage for all over the park, including the Blue Streak sign. Um, you know, and that, again, was one of those popular vote things. When you hear about roller coaster preservation, I think the one image that pops into everybody's head is Belmont's Giant Dipper. You know, that was a ride that was gone. It was pretty much gone, written off. And through the help of ACE members, other enthusiast organizations, and local government, that ride not only came back, but completely revitalized the Mission Bay area. Why do you think that it just wasn't possible to do the same thing at Conneaut? I, I think it was possible. I just don't think it happened. Um, you know, I think every situation is a little different. And, uh, you know, the, the Save the Coaster committee that, that, that is the one that kind of initiated that project. I mean, I remember that because I was a young ACE member in the very early 80s. And I remember that was a big project and it was just dormant for years. And I was, you know, I, I proudly purchased my Save the Coaster committee T-shirt with a, the outline of the Giant Dipper on it. Um, you know, but that obviously got a lot of a lot of people behind it. And so did Conneaut. I mean, the fact that Conneaut operated on a shoestring for over 20 years as a nonprofit entity through all different kinds of, of bankruptcies and fires. And I mean, so many challenges you can't even imagine. Um, and I think, you know, with the right with the right ownership and money coming in, I think Conneaut could have survived. Um, it's it's very, very similar in so many ways to Arnold's Park in Iowa, um, you know, which much like the, the situation in San Diego, that park came back from the dead and now thrives. Um, and it's, it's also a little bit like, like Indiana Beach. It's very much like Indiana Beach in terms of having, a, having lodging, lodging facilities and a campground right there um, in a lakeside resort area. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, with the right ownership, it, it could have survived. The fact that it survived on a shoestring for that, for that long, you know, some, with somebody with the right resources could have really made it happen. The reality is, is that, you know, the park ended up being purchased by a private entity and the private entity could have used resources to really take, take what, take all the charm and everything that, that, that's been salvaged for the last 20 years and, and make something of it. And instead they choose to quite literally tear it down. It is unfortunate. And sadly in 
the amusement park fandom world, it's something that we're we're a bit used to, isn't it? In terms of it's not just Conneaut that we've lost over the past, you know, decade or so. There have been a litany of parks that have gone, you know, away as a result of either just bad financial dealings, just poor management, or in more recent days, uh, real estate. You know, the real estate market can ebb and flow. And when it's hot, an amusement park or a theme park is a lot of land that can fit a lot more things than just rides. It's unfortunate, but it's true. It is true. And I, I find this one to be different because, you know, most parks, if you take, take your typical family-owned park, the next generation isn't interested in taking over. And the reality is, is, a, is that for that owner to retire, the park is, is worth far more selling uh, as just simply land to a developer than it is to someone who wants to operate as an amusement park. Uh, so that's why so many family parks have, and small parks like this have disappeared. You know, but in this case, it's just so much more painful because this kind of came all of a sudden and it came with, with you know, again, you know, I keep, I keep stressing this, but after the park, you know, hung on on a shoestring, you know, with literally no budget and volunteers and whatnot running it for, for 20 years, um, you know, to have somebody take it over, you know, under the premise that he's going to keep the park um, and then, you know, have it go from that to simply being literally destroyed piece by piece um, was, you know, it's just really painful and, and nothing I've ever seen before, you know, in any other park. It's, it's just a very unique situation. And I think that's what has really driven the emotions behind this, because there's a lot of still quite a bit of raw emotion out there online and in the community is, itself about what happened at Conneaut. And I, I can understand the frustration and certainly the anger that's there. Uh, obviously, you don't want to do anything that is untoward or anything that that's illegal <laughs> uh, just because the person that you don't like has done something that you don't like to, you know, to happen at the same time, though, it, it feels a lot different. You're right. than the usual, a developer is going to come in and sell this. It sure seemed like Conneaut was on the path to not only solvency, but success. And in a matter of months, it turned around very quickly to being, no, this could actually be the worst possible thing that could have happened. Exactly. And then I, after that, we just, everybody has watched, you know, little by little is, you know, is what happened, you know, this ride went away and that ride went away and that building got torn down. And so it just became, you know, speculation of, you know, okay, how long is it going to take before, before Blue Streak falls? Realistically, was there anything else that ACE could have done to have prevented Blue Streak from being demolished? Sadly, no, there really isn't because, you know, once, once the park falls into private hands, it, it's really difficult to dictate what somebody does with their private property. Um, you know, when, when the park was in the public hands and you had, you know, various, various committees, you know, trust, boards of trustees running that park, you know, they wanted to run the park and they wanted help, you know, so they would seek ACEs help and guidance and advice or whatever we could do for them. Um, you know, but when you have somebody who owns property and isn't interested and what you have to say about the significance of the ACE roller coaster landmark roller coaster that's sitting on the property or the historic significance of the park, if they're not interested in that, they're not going to listen. Do you know what's happened to the ACE plaque and the trains that were still on property as the demolition was beginning? I have it on good word that the ACE roller coaster landmark plaque that was once in the Blue Streak station is safe and sound, and I am hopeful it will come back into ACE's hands. Um, that's as much as I can say uh, un until myself or one of my ACE colleagues has it in our little hands. <laughs> um, as far as the trains go, um, I am thrilled to say that one of the Vettel train cars is in the local history museum in Conneaut. I think it's called the Conneaut Lake Historical Society or, or something like that, but it's right in the little downtown of Conneaut. This little museum, it's only open on Saturdays. It's a really cool little place, but um, the one good thing that the new owner did was he was someone convinced him to donate one of those cars. And I understand that it is there on property with that museum. The At least some of the other cars from the Vettel train and the NAD train are still on property. Bill, what do you think about 
the future of ride preservation from the ACE perspective. I know a lot of folks are out there saying, well, why couldn't ACE have just bought this ride? Or why couldn't ACE have just, you know, done more? There really was nothing else you can do when, like you said, this is on private property. It's akin to someone saying, look, I want to remodel my house. And some organization comes in and says, well, you can't do that because we don't like it. Uh, yes, the ride was historic in in our terms, but there was no federal or state landmark status on that ride, correct? That's correct. And the, you know, the, the interesting thing is, even if there were some historical status you know, issued by the government on it, like I'll, I'll use Kennywood, for example, Kennywood is a national historic landmark. Um, if, if anybody thinks that means that they can't tear down some of the historical things there, they're mistaken. It's private property. And even though it's, even though it's a, the National Register of Historic Places and certain parts of it, like say the, the original casino building, which is now the, the parks restaurant, Parkside Cafe, they they could tear that down if they want. It's 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 private property, and and they they're allowed to do that. They get the demolition permit, and they're allowed to tear it down. Um, hopefully that that never happen. Um, but yeah, there there is. I mean, to your point, there is a limit to what ACE can do, and and the reality is, um, where ACE can excel is whenever the owner of the coaster wants help. You know, whenever whenever they want to see the coaster operational or roller coaster continue operation, that's where. You know, ACE can help and excel, but it's really hard to step into a situation um, where somebody has private property and plans for it and ACE tells them otherwise. And, you know, the, the, the resources it would take to actually dismantle and move a coaster and, and store it is just, you know, mind blowing. It's 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 far beyond what 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 we have the capability of doing. Um, you know, that doesn't mean we couldn't possibly partner with somebody else that, you know, if, if there was some, you know, just hypothetically say, you know, a wooden roller coaster company who was interested in a particular coaster and wanted to tear it down, you know, perhaps ACE could help fund it or something like that. Um, but some other entity would need the resources to actually do it and a place to store it and that sort of thing. Cause that's, that's a really big undertaking. Yeah. I don't think, you know, as fans, we don't necessarily get that opportunity every now and then to realize just how expensive it is to maintain these attractions and just how expensive pieces and parts for them can be, especially for a ride where the manufacturer no longer exists, especially on your trains. Like Vettel isn't around anymore. NAD is not around anymore. So you've either got to find the parts or you got to manufacture them yourself for the most part. And oh, by the way, you also have to maintain the structure of the ride too. And Wood is not cheap right now. It never really has been, but it's not, you know, just easy, throw it on there. This isn't roller coaster tycoon, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, that's exactly true. And and that's exactly why, you know, some people say, well, can't Ace move the blue streak? Can someone move the blue streak? And no, not really, because the reality is, is so much of that wood has is, is needing replaced as it is. Um, so if you were to take it down and dismantle it, which would cost a fortune because it would just take a long time and a lot of labor to do so, not to mention the, the process of labeling everything. So most of that wood you would not want to use again. Any roller coaster, the wood in the frame and structure of a wooden coaster in the track is, is dynamic. I mean, that wood's always being replaced. Um, you know, so that it's an ongoing process. And because Conneaut Lake Park was operating on a shoestring all those years, you know, there's a lot of deferred maintenance going on there. You know, the coaster, I, I, I believe the coaster was safe. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of a lot of wood replacement and whatnot that I'm sure was deferred. And um, so a lot of replacing needed to happen. So you're really looking at building a whole new coaster, which is, you know, several million dollars. And certainly you can say, yeah, uh, somebody could afford to move that ride. Absolutely. Plenty of billionaires out there, but they're not necessarily into taking down a ride that is, you know, in the condition that, that Blue Streak was at the time. And then finding another place to put it, you know, it's, we could store it for only a certain amount of time before eventually that wood's going to rot completely. So like you said, you have to constantly keep changing out pieces and where does it go next? Where could it potentially go? Yep. And it's not only that, but it's uh, it has a very long footprint and there's, you know, there's fairly limited number of parks who are in the market for a wood coaster that also have that long footprint. You know, the, the same happened with Geauga Lake's Big Dipper, um, you know, which at a certain point in time when it was available was in better condition than what Blue Streak is right now. And, you know, some parks were interested in it and they and they did some measurements and they didn't have the room to, to 
for a place to put it. Even if they had the room, it just wasn't realistic. They would have had to, you know, tear down a building or <laughs> things like that, move move rides or, you know, to, just, just to get a, pan, a piece of land long enough to accommodate that, that out and back design. Let me say take a wild guess and say the boys from Elysburg went out there to take a look. Yeah, they, they might have measured things. Yeah, there might be, a, you know, might be another park in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania that went out and measured things, too. That would have been, boy, that would have been something. You know, that that eastern Ohio market is is one that Kennywood's always been after. So, you know, the idea of attracting even more people from <clears throat> from Cleveland and East was very appealing to them for a bit. I bet. I, I certainly bet that would be the case. So, Bill, I can imagine there's a few folks out there who are, you know, sad or, or angry over what, what's happened. And our chat probably hasn't helped out a lot with that. But is there anything positive to really come out of this whole Blue Streak experience for ACE as a whole? I think enthusiasts and ACE members have uh, certainly have a right to be angry, uh, upset and sad over over what's happened. And I don't think anything's going to change that. I think that, you know, we have to we have to be thankful, though, for quite honestly, all the time that we had with Blue Streak um, and the fact that it, it hung around as long as it did. And that would not have happened if it wasn't for Ace. You know, so I think that there is that to celebrate. You know, the fact that the entire time it was under that nonprofit status ownership with the board of trustees, Blue Streak and, like I said, perhaps the park would not have continued to exist through 2020 without the help of Ace. The park had such a colorful past. You know, it, it's had several bankruptcies over the years. There was a bankruptcy in 1995. And perhaps the, the most colorful part of its history, and maybe the second or third time it was saved, was from a guy from Ohio by the name of Gary Harris. And Gary came in. I mean, the park was literally being auctioned off. And I was there. And so were a lot of park owners. And we were going from ride to ride as David Norton from Norton Auctioneers was auctioning things off. And there was this one guy who was buying a lot of rides. And you know, would ask people from Kennywood, who is that? Who is that? And nobody knew who it was. So after it was all over and after this guy bought a lot of rides, I went over and I'm like, you know, can I ask who you are and what you're doing? I'm like, you bought some rides that are really hard to move, like the bug. I'm like, are you planning on maybe keeping it here? And, you know, he gave me his name and number and said, you know, talk to me, talk to me in a month or whatever it was. And he ended up buying the park and, um, and he put a lot of money into it. He was just, he was kind of like uh, Willy Wonka. It was, it was, it was his chocolate factory. And, you know, he, uh, he drove around in his golf cart, but everything was painted. He added rides. He put a zoo in on the island, um, you know, added with, with 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 some wild animal, you know, exotic animals. Um, and he really fixed it up. And he was also had a lot of issues, including he didn't like to pay taxes. Um, so he had like tax fraud and tax evasion. The whole park was operating on tokens. Um, there were these dollar machines all over the park and anything you wanted to ride or buy food or play a game, you put cash in the machine and bought tokens. So who knows how many millions of dollars of tokens they actually sold. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, I mean, he ended up, you know, going to jail. But before he did, again, he saved the park in the process. But because before all this went down, he deeded the park to the public. And that's what put it into that cycle where it became a, a publicly owned entity. It wasn't always like that. Um, so that set sale for for this whole you know 1999 to 2021 where it was it was owned by a board of trustees and that's where ace really came in that's like i said it became the people's park you know ace members from afar would visit and go wow this place is dilapidated and us locals would walk around with them and like oh no 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 look the, the entrance is all painted we just painted it <laughs> you know and and that sign's new we, we just wait and the blue street sign hasn't lit up in years and it's it's lit up this year and, you know, and volunteers literally helped to do these things. Um, you know, I've been up there painting on numerous occasions. Um, so, you know, really, everybody really took ownership, especially at a local level. Um, and that's, that's, I think, what makes it, you know, a little harder to deal with. Absolutely. Well, Bill, thank you so much for not only giving us a bit more insight into the whole situation. I know the emotions are still really raw, especially with the amount of time and effort that you and, and the rest of that region and ACE in general has put into that park and specifically into that ride. But I think if anything, we should be thankful, like you said, for the amount of time that we were able to get and were able to keep that park around despite quite literally every single thing working against it up until the very end. So thanks for hanging out with us. Absolutely. Thank you all for tuning in this month. I'm so excited to guest host with Chris again this month and love the chance 
to sit down and talk about coasters because what could be better than a conversation over coasters? Uh, how about a little bit warmer temperatures? That would be nice, but we'll work on that slowly but surely in the next couple of weeks. And Elizabeth, it is always fun to have you come out on the podcast as well and enjoy hearing not only from you, but from all of our fellow ACE members on what you think about the podcast and maybe any ideas that you might have. So be sure to send them in podcast at aceonline.org because we love to hear feedback and we want to hear from you because remember, this is your podcast. And we also want to thank everybody else who helps out with the ACE podcast. Just because you might hear it's myself and Elizabeth doesn't mean it's just us working on it. There's a whole slew of volunteers helping out to make sure this podcast sounds as good as it does. It's amazing what it takes behind the scenes to make all this happen, isn't it? I love the team we get to work with. Absolutely. And we love being able to hear how everybody enjoys listening to the podcast, whether you're in the car, at work, or just hanging out at home. So thanks everyone for listening this month. And we look forward to seeing you out at a park real soon. 